fiction and in one of my favorite science fiction series, the author, when he finishes the trilogy, writes a fourth book in which he chooses a minor character in the series and in one book retells the whole story from the perspective of that minor character that in the original reading you more or less ignored. It's a brilliant accomplishment and it, the, the author is a, certainly a gifted writer. And it's similar to the passage of scripture which is before us this morning. Genesis chapter 2 is a second telling of the creation story of Genesis chapter 1, but from a different perspective. In the second account, it takes a different point of view. Now, the creation of man has already been described in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, from the perspective of man being made in a most glorious and dignified manner, made in the image of God. Now, that's a remarkable thing if you think about it. Being endowed with not just the image of a king, and this phrase image was intended to evoke kind of the Egyptian concept of a king and instill it clearly with new spiritual meaning. But Moses isn't just saying in creation man was made in the image of a king. He's saying man was made in the image of the creator king. This is giving human beings the highest possible nobility. Nothing in creation can compare with this. But in Genesis 2, starting at verse 4, the emphasis is not so much on the greatness and the glory and the nobility of man, but on man's dependency, his fragility, and his humility. Even though sin hasn't entered the picture, God's emphasis in the, in the second chapter of Genesis is on man's humble origins made from the dust. I think this highlights a problem that we have as human beings. Being made in his image, you tend to forget that the basis of your having such remarkable gifts and abilities is not the furtherance of your own agenda or the advancement of your own plans and projects in the world. The point of being made in God's image is that you're advancing God's purposes, God's plans, and God's projects in the world. You are, by your very created purpose, made to honor, dignify, and imitate the Creator and not go off in your own way. Genesis chapter 2, therefore, is in the Bible so that you will have a detailed description of the ideal relationship that you as a creature are to have with man, with God, your Creator. It's as if God knew what you were going to struggle with, and so after providing such a remarkably beautiful picture of the creation in chapter 1, which is, culminates in the creation of man in the image of God, the Lord lays out the pattern of your relationship with him in chapter 2. In a nutshell, Genesis 2 is giving the basis for and the background to your relationship with God. And in so doing, it's a check on human pride. Pride is such a devastating problem amongst us as human beings it's also a problem in the Christian church, and I know it's a problem in this congregation. We're no exception to the general rule. Genesis 2, then, is a reminder for each one of you of what your relationship with God should look like, and perhaps for some of you, it may represent an invitation to be in a relationship with God for the first time. So that's why my sermon title this morning is God, the Garden, and You. 
to capture this idea that Genesis 2 is zeroing in on man's relationship with God, on your relationship with God. The big idea here is that Adam, the first man's relationship with God, understanding that is fundamental for you to understand what your relationship with God is all about. Every single person here this morning, whether rich or poor, whether young or old, needs to understand what your relationship with God should look like. And so our story begins with a couple of preliminary details. In verse 4, which I'll read in a moment, announces that we're focusing on an important product of the creation of the heavens and the earth, the creation of man. And then verses 5 and 6 explain that while God already made some wild seed-bearing plants in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, Adam was not yet present to begin cultivating crops, which would ultimately be part of his essential calling as a gardener in God's world. So we're going to pick up the story then in chapter 2, verse 7, at the creation of man. Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. I'll be reading down to verse 17. This is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Let's give our attention to it. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature or a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in, the, in Eden in the east, and there he put the man, or placed, situated, rested the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush, and the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So far the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for this portion of it which talks about our relationship with you, what it was originally and what it should be. I pray now that each of us would, in hearing this morning's sermon, reflect on and consider our relationship with you. If that's a new thought, Lord, may it, may it be the beginning of a real life transformation for someone this morning. If someone is a veteran of the Christian faith and has been walking with you and talking with you, as it were, for many years, I pray that this morning's message would be a renewal of that relationship. And this we ask, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So we're considering now what this passage teaches us about your relationship with God. I want to point out, first of all, that this relationship is creaturely. It's creaturely. Now that word just means that you are a part of God's creation. And in this text, it shows that you're more closely related to the creation than you are to God. Genesis 1 shows the opposite. It shows that you're more closely related to God as an image bearer. But here, Moses is specific in detailing a a, a facet of the creation of man that was not mentioned in chapter 1, which is that God, out of the dust of the ground, formed or fashioned like a potter, man. And then in the resulting nose, some of ours are bigger than others, God breathes life, the breath of life, into this dusty, dry, clay man, which would be Adam. So Adam is a brother to the earth. Adam is a brother to the world. Adam is kin to all creation. Adam is more like the animals in this passage because the resulting the, the outcome, the resulting outcome of the outbreathing of the breath of life by God is simply to make Adam a living creature and nothing more. If you write in your Bibles, you can circle that phrase, a living creature or a living being. That's the same word used to describe animals in Genesis chapter 7, verse 22, and also in Genesis chapter 1. You'd think that the result of the outbreathing of the breath of life from Almighty God would create Adam into something more. And of course it does in Genesis 1. But in Genesis 2, the important point that you must grasp is that your relationship with God is creaturely. It's dusty. It's earthy. Man is an earthling from the earth. He is not God any more than the rocks are God, the trees are God, the birds, the fish of the sea are God, the animals are God. You need to realize in this first point that because God has made man from the dust of the earth, your relationship with God is that of a creature to his creator. I believe this shows that you are to be as with all of creation, absolutely 100% dependent upon God for everything in your life. And that sense of entitlement and privilege and power that creeps into your creaturely mind from time to time needs to be set aside on a regular basis and you need to be reminded, I am of clay. Man is from dust and to dust he shall return. And that all of our dreams and hopes and aspirations, which I believe spring rightly from our being made in the image of God, need to be controlled or bounded by the reality that we are not God. Which touches on our disappointments and our fears and our struggles, our strivings and our wrestlings. This life is not about you. It is not yours to live to the fullest. It is his, and you are his creature. 
You don't get to set the rules of the game called life. He has set the rules and the boundaries. And as his creatures, you're to play within and play according to his terms, his plan, his creation. You're his creature. Don't forget it. Now that I've dusted off my first point, I'll come to my second point. Not only is your relationship with God creaturely, your relationship with God is a companionship or a friendship. It's a fellowship of friends. Your relationship is creaturely, but it doesn't stay there. You are, after all, made in His image. And so your relationship with God goes beyond that of a mere creature or an animal to one which rises to something we can even call reverently friendship. You are friends with Almighty God. Now that should just blow your mind right there. God has made you his friend. He has made himself your friend. You see this in our text because man is specifically having been created from the dust. If you look at verse 8 of the passage, it says, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, so God is here portrayed as a farmer. And there he places, puts, situates, rests, I said as I read this. He situates man in the garden that he planted. This is repeated also in verse 15. Look at the text. Then the Lord God took the man and put him, placed him, rested him in this garden that he had made to work and to keep it. So man is placed in the garden of God to be a companion or to have fellowship with God because the garden is the dwelling place or the temple of God. Now, Nowhere in our passage does it say that the garden, which is in Eden, it's in the east portion of Eden, by the way, nowhere does it say that the garden of Eden is a temple. But this is actually an important theme that recurs throughout the entire Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Dr. Greg Beale, in fact, has written an entire book about this topic. Consider a, a couple of ways that Eden is like the Jewish temple that Solomon would build. See if you agree with my thinking here. Just as Israel's temple was the place where the priest experienced God's unique presence, so also in the Garden of Eden, man, made in the image of God, made from the dust, experiences the friendship and fellowship with God. It's where a man walked with God and talked with God. Eden is a garden temple. Just as Israel's priests were to guard and keep, and those words are mentioned in our text in verse 15, those same two words are used to describe Israel's priest to guard and keep the temple. So like the priest, Adam is told in Genesis 2.15 that he is to guard and to keep the garden. And one of the main things that the priests were to guard was what? The law of God. The Word of God. 
They're to guard it. They're to teach it. They're to protect it. They're to teach and to preach it, explain it, instruct the people about God's law, such that the temple and the law go hand in hand. In fact, there was a copy of the law in the temple, at the heart of the temple, which represented the very center of their guarding and keeping work. Now, what did God say to man? The first words of the Creator to the creature in the Bible, in verse 16. Guard and keep my law. Of all the trees, it says, in the garden you may eat, but this tree, and here's the law, you must not eat. So Adam is told, like a, like a garden priest in a garden temple, to guard and keep the garden, to till it. Yes, it has an agricultural element that a, that a priest in a, in a marble temple wouldn't have. But in this original temple, not only was he given agricultural responsibilities, but he was absolutely given a priestly, royal, holy function of guarding and keeping. And I believe in this word to guard and keep, there's a hint, don't you think, of what's to come in the story of an intruder to the holy temple in the garden. Thirdly, just as disobedience to this law results in being expelled from the temple by a, by a priest because God's temple is what? It's holy. And just as disobedience to God's law results in the people as a whole being expelled from the land because God's land is what? Holy. So also when Adam and Eve fail to keep the law that they're given to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they are expelled from the holy garden temple because it is the dwelling place of God, and it is holy. And so serious is their offense that a pair of flaming swords is stationed in cherubim at the eastward entrance of the garden. And there are many other similarities as well that we could go into. The lampstand in the temple, for example, symbolizes the tree of life in the garden with its branches. Ezekiel envisioned a temple placed on a mountain with the river running beneath it, which streams water the world. And we see that picture here in verses 10 through 14 of our text, which if you're into geology and geography, I have no idea where Eden is. In, uh, in Calvin's commentary, he spends 10 pages, and it's the only place in the entirety of Calvin's work that he includes a map, a visual aid. And he literally attempts to draw a picture of where Eden was. I'm not going there this morning. The point is this. Just as the temple was a place of God's dwelling, it wasn't the first place that he dwelt. The first dwelling of God in the world, and therefore the first temple, is in Eden, in the garden, with man, who is the friend of God. So my first point is that your relationship with God is creaturely. My second point is that your relationship with God is like a companionship or a friendship. And thirdly, your relationship with God is under his command. And I've, I've hinted at this already, haven't I, when I mentioned the law. You see this in our text in verses 15 through 17, which we should read again. 
Verse 15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him, placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. We've already been mentioning this idea of being under command. When I think of under command, I was thinking of someone in the armed forces, someone in the army or the Air Force or the Navy, where the person is under command, at ease, attention, under command. And something called AWOL, you've heard of this, is someone who is, what, absent without leave. That person is under command. You can't just leave the base. You can't just leave the field. Leave is something that you're given by your commanding officer. And so I see in this passage a picture of Adam as a kind of soldier, if you will, under the command of his commanding officer, who is his friend, but who is his Lord, which is the Creator God. Now, when something, especially when we're talking about a relationship with God, is described as being under God's command, This is just another way of what the Bible calls being in covenant with God. That's right, covenant. Now, covenant is a word that gets thrown around, and it's often hard for people to understand what is a covenant. What is a covenant? Well, a covenant, as I think about it, is simply this, an unchangeable arrangement between God and man in which man is the servant and the recipient of the terms being under God's command, and God is the sole king and determiner of those terms. It's an unchangeable arrangement between God and man where man receives the terms from God and God sets the terms for man. In a covenant, God plays the part of a king. And man plays the part of a subject. God plays the part, if you will, of a commanding officer. And man plays the part of a dutiful soldier. Our church actually uses a teaching tool that explains this very well. It's called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And if you got a copy of the sermon outline that I made for this morning's message, you can see Shorter Catechism question 12. In that outline, it says this, it asks this, what special act of providence did God exercise towards man in the estate wherein he was created? The answer is this, when God created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death. This special act of providence shows that God didn't have to enter into a friendship, a fellowship, a companionship with man. He could have stopped at creating man. But the fact that he not only made man, but then placed man in the garden, gave him his image, and speaks to man the terms of a covenant shows us that it is indeed a special act of providence, an additional action beyond creation which God sets the terms for this friendship or companionship with man. And what are those terms? He is forbidden to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In this covenant, the catechism calls it a covenant of life. 
Sometimes we call it a covenant of works. It means the same thing. The terms are, do not eat of this tree. But don't forget the positive side. What does verse 16 say? 17 is negative, clearly. But what does verse 16 say? Verse 16 says, of all the trees of the garden, you may eat. Well, what do we do as people? We always zoom in on the negative. Say, how, how did my speech go? How did that sermon go? Well, you know, you made some really good illustrations, and I really like the way you explain the Bible, and da-da-da-da-da, but... And I'm like, okay, what was it? You forget everything positive, and you just zoom in on the negative. Let's look at these two trees for a moment. Oh, first I wanted to give this quote from Hamilton, a commentator on this idea of negative and positive. Don't forget that God in the garden gives Adam ample permission, but only a single probation. Ample permission, you may eat of all the trees. This is going to come back into play, by the way, in the the temptation to sin, where the devil is part of his strategy. We're going to see this in a couple weeks. Insinuates that God is stingy and mean towards Adam and Eve. Let's remember, ample permission and only a single probation. Only a single prohibition. Before I conclude this morning, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about these two trees. They're very important. You know what the trees are, right? I've already mentioned one. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That shows up in our text in verse 17. Now we need to point out, first of all, that This is a good tree. Genesis 1.31, God saw all that he had made. And what did he say? It's very good. He planted this tree in Genesis 2, verse 8 and 9. God doesn't do bad things. It's a good tree. There's nothing evil about this tree. There's nothing inherently wrong with this tree. The, The wood isn't poison, in other words. The fruit isn't poison, in other words. What you need to know about the the tree is this phrase, and all three words are important, the knowledge of good and evil. This phrase shows up at a couple of different, actually at several places in the Bible. Sometimes the knowledge of good and evil is used to describe children who are innocent and aren't old enough yet to know the difference between good and evil, right and wrong. And there's a quality of innocence about all the children. And when we looked at Dean this morning, it's like, there's not a bad bone in his body. Thank God he doesn't know, know good and evil yet. That's true. But there's another use of the phrase, the knowledge of good and evil in the Bible, which we need to remember as well. It's used when describing kings and judges. It's a courtroom phrase. It's a legal term. Which when all the facts are presented before the the, the throne of the king or or all the evidence is marshaled in in a courtroom trial, the judge will determine good and evil. The judge or the king will decree right and wrong. Now, in order to understand what this phrase in Genesis 2 means, we have to kindly combine 
these two ideas. The idea of innocence and the idea of judgment. And in commanding man to abstain, to avoid, to not eat from the tree, what he's saying is, be innocent of judgment. That's what he's saying. Do not enter into the role or climb up on the throne of the judge and play God. Saying, that's right and that's wrong. That's right and that's wrong. Don't do that, Adam. That's very bad. In fact, the minute you do that, you take to yourself the mantle of deity that only belongs to me, and you're just a dust man. You're arrogating, to use a phrase, the right to determine right and wrong that only belongs to the one who made all things and therefore who knows what is truly good that leads to life and what is truly bad which leads to death. Don't go there, Adam. Don't even think about it. It's not good for you. In fact, in the day you go there, you'll be doomed. Doomed to die. Walke puts it this way, only God in heaven who transcends time and space has the prerogative to know what is truly good and bad for human life. As I said, there's nothing wrong with this tree. It too is good. The difference is that with it, God, God designated this tree. It's like he picked one. This tree represents my deity, my lordship, my covenant power in this relationship and in this garden. It's a reminder that Adam is not God. Well, what about the other tree? As I said, we need to look at these two trees because they're a huge significance for the rest of the story of the Bible. And you can hear, even in my explanation of this first tree, how important it is and how the problem of the tree repeats itself over and over again in the scriptures. The second tree, then, is the tree of life. It's found in verse 9 of our text, almost as, a, as an aside. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What is this tree of life? Well, To understand why this tree is important, you need to fast forward a little bit to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 22. Take a look at that verse. Just turn the page. Genesis 3.22 says this, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What this teaches us is that the further problem of sin, or a further problem after sin, would be grasping for the tree of life. 
this reward would and should have only be given to Adam had he kept the command that God gave him in verse 15 of chapter 2. So the presence of the tree of life indicates a future reward for Adam, even in his state of perfection, that he had not yet attained. So Adam is perfect as he's created without sin, and yet he's not fully perfect. Now, if that seems confusing or contradictory, think about it like this. Adam was perfect in the way that he was made, but his perfection consisted in the possibility of him falling, which he did. The further perfection, which Adam had not yet attained, was a confirmation in obedience that didn't take place such that he would never fall again. That's the further perfection or the ultimate perfection which Adam in Genesis chapter 2 had not yet attained. Some people will explain this as Adam is in a testing phase. Some people have described this as Adam's probation. Before the fall, Adam truly enjoyed life and fellowship with God, but it was life and fellowship with God that was subject to change. It could change. And it could go one of two directions. If passing through the probation, Adam succeeded in keeping the command, the simple command that God gave him, it would change by being confirmed and perfected in a guaranteed, unimpeachable commitment and relationship with God forever. And if Adam failed, which he did, and the story shows us this, then Adam would be removed from the relationship that he had with God and expelled from the holy temple garden. Unfortunately, Adam didn't get confirmed as he should have, unfortunately for you and me. Adam was expelled because he didn't submit to the commandment of God. But the good news is that God sent another Adam. God sent a new creation into the world. God started again, if you will. Now, not entirely from scratch. He used the material of this creation in sending God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, clothed him in human flesh, made in the likeness of sinful flesh, born of a woman and born under the law, as our second Adam to fulfill and to pass the probation and the test that our father Adam and Eve failed. Here's how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 5. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Just as sin reigned in death, grace must also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5, 18, 19, and 20. What Paul is saying in this passage in Romans is that the coming of Jesus may be understood as the coming of a new Adam, a second Adam, not like the first one, though he was also like Adam, made of dust, but his human nature was added to an eternal person, God the Son. And so while the first Adam became a living being, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the second Adam becomes a life-giving spirit by his death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. This means that while we inherit death and corruption from the first Adam, by faith in Christ, the second Adam, we receive life incorruptible 
eternal life. Christ has come and kept the law. Christ has stayed under the command of God in our place. And in so doing, he's shown you the way back to the garden, past the flaming swords, past those angry cherubim, into the holy temple once again. Under and through the wrath and curse of God due to you for sin. But even more, he's ushered you into a full, perfectly perfect, final, unchangeable, guaranteed communion and union with God, which is the very purpose and the highest expression of human existence. Well, I want to end my sermon this morning with a story. When I was in seminary, I lived in Southern California, studying to be a pastor, and as part of my tasks, I was doing some evangelism in the neighborhood behind the church. And I was going door to door and knocking on people's doors and asking them if they went to church and if they had any interest in talking about God and so forth. Just some basic questions, which, by the way, I've done some, and some of you have done that here in this neighborhood. I'll never forget the, the conversation I had with one man whose door I knocked on. Good, good morning, sir. Good afternoon, sir. I'm Phil. I, I'm part of the pastor. I'm, I'm uh, a, an intern at the church down the street. Do you mind if I ask you a couple questions about God? And he said, sure, go ahead. One of my questions was, I said, if you died today and God were to say, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And he looked at me and he didn't miss a beat. And he said, with his hands on his hips, I'd say, move over, big guy, I'm coming in. That's what he said. I was 25 years old. And you could literally hear my jaw jaw hit the floor at this point. Like, you know, if God struck people down, like that'd be the moment. But isn't that what we all say? We try to live our lives apart from God and apart from Jesus Christ on our own terms, not as creature, but as creator. Having judged knowledge of good and evil, having arrogated to ourselves the right to, to play God in our lives and say, this is good and this is bad. That man will not get past the flaming cherubim, and neither will you, if that's your attitude. So I want to close this morning by inviting you, each and every one of you, every one of you is trying, I'm telling you this, you need to trust me when I say this, you're trying to get back to Eden. I can tell by the way you live. You love sports, you love your job, you love your relationship, you love your kids, you love your hobbies. All these things is just diving into Eden, it's crawling your way, you're climbing over the fence, you're trying to get to that perfect life, your best life now. All of us, and some of us especially, are trying to realize or make up our own Eden. Whether it's through our diet or our academics or our jobs. Perhaps it's in the pursuit of sex, drugs, alcohol, or some other addictive behavior. Perhaps you're finding God in nature, making an Eden of the woods or the beach or the mountains. There's only one way back to Eden, and it's guarded, as I said, by flaming swords. But the good news is that Jesus opens the door to paradise. 
You must believe and walk by faith in him. This is why he says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The only way back to paradise is by Jesus, who gives you the right to eat from the tree of life, which is his body and his blood. Let us pray. Father, as we conclude this morning, we ask that you would help us to understand what we've heard. God, the garden, and me. May we reflect on how we're living our lives, and some of us perhaps need to honestly admit that we're making our own heaven here. Which may be more subtle but no less blasphemous than the man who I met so many years ago, who arrogantly claimed that he would tell you to step aside and barge his way into your holy temple. Father, others of us have made that commitment to Jesus Christ. We know that he is the way, the truth, and the life, but we're not living up to our calling. And so, as we suggested in the beginning, we too need to be refreshed in our relationship with you. We need to be reminded that it's on your terms and freshly empowered by your spirit and your word in the sacrament, especially as we seek to live lives that bring honor and glory to you as we point the way for others to see that heaven is real and it's the place which is our ultimate home. And I pray that we could help each other do this as a congregation as we encourage one another all the more, as long as it is called today, as we see that great day, the great day of paradise, Eden's great day, as we see that day approaching, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.